Welcome to Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Trevor Nichols. Hi, Trevor Nichols. How are you? I'm doing great, Mark Legere. How are you? I'm very good, sir. And where do I find you today? I am working out of the Volta co-working space in downtown Halifax. Yes, and uh, I am uh, in St. John at our at our head office, and uh, it it just feels like so long since uh, since I've seen you, Trevor. And it was just recent uh, in our foray onto the uh, golf course outside Halifax for the Halifax Chamber Tournament. Yes, uh, great event, lots of connections. Um, totally embarrassing in terms of the golf skill level we brought to that event, though. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Especially for, from you and I and Derek, I think Shelly uh, Snodgrass, our GM, may have uh, outperformed us on the course, but she she definitely pulled us through. Yeah. Thank goodness for Shelly, because without her, we would have been looked like true clowns out there. That is for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Trevor, I uh, I drove to Halifax to see you. Um but when, uh, but I, when I was a younger man, I used to find other ways to get to Halifax uh, when I was around your age. Uh, I used to hitchhike a lot. That's how I got to Halifax a lot in the old days when I was going to school there and, and coming home. Um, but you know what I also used to do, Trevor, because it was really cheap at the time, is I used to, it sounds crazy, I used to fly to Halifax from St. John. In an aeroplane? In an aeroplane. And it, it was it was the funniest uh, kind of uh, way to travel to Halifax because essentially the plane would take off uh, from St. John and rise into the air. And it felt like even before the plane started to like level out, we were descending. <laughs> and, <laughs> your your and it, path would just look like the top of a triangle. <laughs> yeah. And it was... Um, it was funny because I used to do it on occasion. I actually must say I also used to take the train a lot to Halifax. And uh, and that's actually something that you can no longer do from St. John. You can do it from Moncton now. But um, I also used to take the train. And it, it, the funny thing about the flight to Halifax uh, for a young guy um, who didn't fly a lot at the time is it literally was like the drive to the neighboring suburb of, of Rosse uh, here. Uh, it was literally a 20-minute flight. Um, but I used to take it frequently and cause they would offer these seat sales and, uh, it was, you know, but it was kind of amusing cause it was like the flight part of it was really short. Um, but the process of like getting to the airport and going through security and then like getting off the plane in Halifax and then get, you know, taking a bus into town or a cab, um, you might as well have driven really. <laughs> yeah. I used to bump up with similar thing. I, I, you know, lived in the Annapolis Valley and was going to university in Fredericton and by the time you would take a flight and get in and out of the airport, it's, it was actually just faster for me to drive. <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually, the reason why uh, I bring this topic up with you, Trevor, is, um, you know, as, as we both know, and, and you know, covering this story from, from uh, St. John and from Halifax, and it, it's been a rough six months uh, for the airline industry and for our airports because of uh, the coronavirus we found out this week that uh, WestJet had suspended uh, indefinitely uh, service in many Atlantic uh, Canadian airports, uh, including in Moncton and Fredericton, and uh, were curtailing service in St. John's and Halifax. And it's been yet an, you know, another event here uh, that showed how much the airline industry is actually in trouble. Yeah, and, and this was a huge one here too. Um, I think they said that they cut their seat capacity in Atlantic Canada by 80%, I want to say. And if I remember correctly, it's only Halifax and St. John's, Newfoundland that still have any WestJet flights in them at all. So big, big, big blow for our airports. Yeah. And it, and it's, you know, obviously a, a blow for the airlines, but also the airports. And, you know, we had, you know, just just had the news, you know, out of Halifax that they were introducing, you know, new new passenger fees, um, which, you know, is, which just factors into the airlines decisions, right? When they're they're looking at, you know, increased fees for passengers there. We, we have the Atlantic bubble, um, which has also created, uh, you know, real issues with with the with the airline industry, with people coming in here uh, and people going out, you know, needing to do 14 day uh, quarantines. Right. Which has made air travel, you know, nearly nearly impossible, Trevor. Yeah. And, and you know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll talk to someone from the Halifax airport through my reporting and uh it's always a very, very depressing conversation. It's, it's not fun to be reporting on this right now. I can't imagine trying to operate an airport. Yeah, no, and for sure, for sure, and for you on a personal level too, because I know that, uh, you know, recently you, you had taken, taken a vacation and, you know, gone to Ontario to see family and, and come back here and had to essentially stay in your apartment for 14 days. 
Yeah, and I will say that, you know, we went to see my my in-laws and if it were not from, you know, my wife's intense desire to go see her family, uh, we wouldn't have gone at all because that quarantine is such a barrier. And, uh, and you know, I know like, in, you know, in some ways we can all manage this, right? Like you, we, obviously as journalists, we've been working, you know, remotely and working from our apartments and are just starting to get back into our offices. So, you know, somebody like you can, can go to Ontario, come back here and, uh, you know, do the 14 days and, and, and work from home very productively. Um, you know, but for a lot of people, you know, going to see family and coming back here or, you know, business travelers, uh, you know, both coming here or people going out, you know, those 14 day quarantines are, are pretty impossible, right? Uh, in, in terms of being able to travel, but still uh, live your ordinary life and you return home. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so on that note, you know, Trevor, I was thinking it's the perfect opportunity to have a conversation uh, with somebody in, in the industry that can shed some light on the challenges, uh, but also, you know, talk about, talk about, you know, the, the solutions to this. And uh, I uh, booked somebody close to home here, uh, Derek Stanford, and uh, Derek is the uh, CEO of the St. John Airport, uh, but he's also uh, the, the current president of the Atlantic Canada Airports Association. And uh, Derek's a really interesting guy because uh, before he got into, uh, you know, the, into the airport sector uh, as at the, at the St. John airport and now with the Atlantic Canada airports association, he was in the tech sector and had done a lot of traveling personally for work. And uh, he, you know, got to see upfront the advantages of being able to live out of Atlantic Canada, uh, but also be in a job where he had to be on the road all the time. Um, he also had the benefit, has the benefit of, Having spent a long time in a tech sector that obviously goes through its ups and downs, um, whether you're with a, a startup or with your, whether you're with a big, long-standing tech company. Um, so it was interesting to have a conversation with him about the challenges that, that we face uh, in, in the industry right now. Yeah, I really look forward to hearing this conversation. I know that Derek has a lot to say and he's got a lot of good insight, so I'm sure it's a good one. Excellent. Well, let's jump to that conversation, Trevor. Morning, Derek. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah. So where do I find you this morning? Today? It's Friday. It's casual Friday. So I'm working from my home office in Rothsay, New Brunswick. Right. So you, you can be ultra casual. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, a good starting point, I think, Derek, for our conversation today is, um, you know, I was, I was learning about your personal background and uh, your, I, find that I found your path into the... Uh, airport industry somewhat indirect and now I'm, I'm making a bad pun already Derek uh, but I'm just curious to know a little bit about your background to kind of set the table for our conversation here sure um, yeah there's a lot of great airport and runway uh, puns in this industry that's for sure but uh, <laughs> yeah I'm a relative newcomer to the airport industry it's funny when the recruiter contacted me about the opportunity at the St. John Airport I said to him I don't know much about airports other than I'm in them all the time because um, the, the the 18 years prior to that, I was in the enterprise software space, um, working for um, some of Canada's largest software companies, some of Canada's smallest software companies. And I had actually been offered a job with Innovatia, which is a St. John-based technology company. And it was Innovatia that moved me to New, to New Brunswick in 2004 and um, to create a spinoff, which we subsequently spun off. And uh, I had moved here from Ottawa, where I had been living for... Um, for 12 years before that. And uh, once we'd sold off the um, the entity we'd created, I'd, I'd gone back to my former employer, which was OpenText, which is now Canada's largest software company. And I just did it from New Brunswick. Um, I used to work in the Ottawa office and I was in the office every day. I moved to New Brunswick um, where I had gone to university and I loved New Brunswick. I'm originally from Montreal and my wife and I always wanted to move back one day and raise our kids in New Brunswick. And you know, we, we thought it was just a great, great place. But now I was faced with doing my job from New Brunswick. And one of the key things uh, that I tell people is when I was um, traveling all over the world uh, from New Brunswick and, and leading the, the sales organization for various software companies, I even opened an office in the UK for one of the software companies that I worked for. But what made living in New Brunswick amazing from uh, working remotely was the fact that I would tell people I could be anywhere in North America for lunch. Um, in other words, I could leave on the early flight, uh, uh, you know, the 5.15 or the 5.30 a.m. Uh, flights, but I could be in 
LA, Vancouver, Phoenix, Calgary, New York City, Chicago, or Orlando, all easily uh, before lunch, which a lot of my clients didn't even realize that um, I lived in New Brunswick. I even, and I had a lot of clients in Toronto and spent a lot of my career in Toronto. And uh, a lot of the clients that I had never knew that I actually lived in New Brunswick, Canada. And um, it was having access to safe, modern, reliable air transportation um, that made that uh, possible. And if you look at, you know, today you can't pick up a newspaper or a magazine and read an article about how droves of people are going to be selling their house in Toronto or Vancouver and coming down to New Brunswick with a boatload full of money and they're going to buy the house of their dreams on the water for $500,000 and they're going to put $500,000 in their bank account and they're going to live in New Brunswick happily ever after, which sounds great and I moved here and I certainly love it. But it's going to be really tricky to do if uh, the airports aren't there to support that uh, that notion. And, and you know, and Derek, I know we you know we've been using this now as we were using this as a selling feature pre-COVID, right? This this idea that you know, in 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 the economy we're in now, one that you were living in for for decades essentially uh, before this conversation became serious, you know, about the ability to work from somewhere like New Brunswick. Um, you know, for a company that has global reach and but but live in a place that has a certain kind of quality of life, a certain uh, cost of living. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, uh, before we dive in deeper into the conversation on on airports. Uh, so, you know, you sound like an urban guy, right? You grew up in uh, you're born in Montreal and you've lived in, in big cities and, and you've obviously traveled a lot for your work. Why? Why New Brunswick? I mean, you came to UNB. But what what made you want to ultimately live here and be here? That's a great question. I mean, I had never been to the Maritimes before I came to university. So literally my first time being in New Brunswick was my my first day of university. And um, I was, for me, it was hard to imagine that such a place even existed. It's so beautiful. People are so amazing. Um, The scenery and the, uh, the region is so interesting to explore. The cities are amazing. Um, so I, I just fell in love. And when I graduated, I, I really didn't want to leave New Brunswick, but it was, um, you know, the, 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 there was not a lot of jobs for uh, an upper Canadian kid like me to stay in New Brunswick. So like a lot of my classmates at the time, everybody went to Toronto. So off I went to Toronto and and, um, you know, my wife and I had gone to university together and uh, we had always dreamed of being able to move back to New Brunswick one day. And um, it, uh, we finally were able to make that come true in 2004. But to me, it's the people, it's the way of life, it's the scenery, it's the overall outlook people have uh, on life here. Like I said, I spent a lot of my career in Toronto, in Waterloo, in Ottawa, and you know, the, the quality of life that we have here is really, really enviable. And um, I mean, I really got it from the day that I arrived here to go to school and just wanted to live here again. And I don't regret it. And I've actually been really happy moving to St. John and uh, and wish I moved to St. John sooner. I was living in Fredericton for 11 years before I moved to St. John. And um, St. John is just even even takes it, takes it up another level. So just absolutely love it. I definitely I want to return to uh, this conversation a little bit at the end of our chat uh, when we talk about, uh, you know, the role of, of the airports in in our recovery in the recovery from COVID-19. Uh, but I thought maybe it'd be useful for us to kind of like set the table here and have you talk to me, especially in your role as, you know, president of the Atlantic Canada Airports Association. So where where are we now in terms of the landscape on on airports in Atlanta, Canada, that's at this stage in, in, in the recovery? Well, it's, um, it's, it's a kind of a real scary point, to be honest with you. Um, you know, it's funny, as a user of the system for a long time, a heavy user, I used to do about 140 flights a year uh, on, uh, on Air Canada when I was in the software industry. So over that 11-year period, I really saw the um, offerings grow. Uh, when I first started, you know, being a, a, a you know, a, a remote working guy and traveling every week. It was probably 2005 when that started. And I got out of traveling every single week on a plane in, in, the, in 2016. So over that span, the offerings, the pricing, the frequency, the schedule, it improved every year in Atlantic Canada. So in a way, we had actually built ourselves up a wonderful network with great connections, with good carriers, with decent pricing, 
And, you know, you could live in Atlantic Canada and absolutely feel connected to the rest of the country, feel connected to the rest of the world, be able to go on vacation, be able to go and see family and friends. It was very accessible and it made living in Atlantic Canada even better to be able to, to have that access to, to the schedule. Fast forward to a post-pandemic world now or the midst of a pandemic world, there's one flight a day from St. John, New Brunswick to, to Montreal. So um, not even uh, not even Toronto, so to Montreal. And if you look around Atlantic Canada, the, the amount of flights and the amount of seats, as they call it here, capacity inventory, if you will, that's been removed from the market is, is shocking. And I don't think w- what people understand is it took decades to build that network in Atlantic Canada, and it may take decades to rebuild it. So when you think of it now, you know, you used to be able to get up, go to the airport on a 15-minute drive, jump on that early morning flight, change flights in Montreal and Toronto, pretty much be at your destination, no matter how far away it was. Within that same day, now uh, travel by air is going to be a lot more difficult. And it's not as though, in many cases, these planes that um, the airlines had, are they're just going to park them. They're selling them. Their leases are ending on many of them. They're not renewing the leases. The capacity is going to be gone from the marketplace. And in a semi-permanent fashion, where, as I said before, it will take years to rebuild the network. In fact, analysts' best estimates on when we'll see 2019 passenger levels again is now five to six years out. And as you know, um, living in Atlantic Canada, it does have its challenges. We are, you know, we just can't jump in the car and, and drive to Toronto and, and, you know, be there in a four or five hour trip and make a meeting or see family and friends. We, we are a little bit remote. We are a little bit further away, um, even more so for the folks in Newfoundland. So anything that makes us more remote, anything that makes us less accessible is a step backward uh, with regards to, you know, our economy, with regards to our competitiveness, and unfortunately, perhaps with regards to our quality of life that we've been able to enjoy, which I'd argue air access is a big part of, uh, of what made it so amazing that you can, you know, go do the Toronto thing, see a ball game, see a concert, see a show, spend the night, go to a you know a restaurant, see family and friends, and be back here, and it's pretty painless. So um, you know it's uh, it's a very precarious time right now, especially as you know the busy summer months are behind us. You know the um, we weren't able to to salvage any of our business that we had hoped for in the in the in the peak period for the air, aviation sector, which is June, July, and August. September is not typically a bad month either. November is not very good. January and February are not very good. You get a little bump at Christmas time for family uh, and friends. But again, with the Atlantic domestic border restrictions, that's not a given either. So we're not only are we heading into the, the lower months already pretty battered and beaten, there's no end in sight either. So it's um, it's going to be a very perilous next four to five months um, because there's not a lot of indicators that there's any relief on the way or anything that will change the current situation. So very, very precarious time. Yeah. And of course this week, um, you, you know, there's obviously been a lot of coverage of, of, you know, the airports and, and, and the plight of the airports in the last several months is one of the sectors is really hard hit. Uh, but this, you know, this week in particular, we have, you know, the news of WestJet, uh, suspending service uh, in in many cities and curtailing it uh, in in cities like like Halifax and and St John's. No, you're you're very you're very correct. And there's a lot of analysts. I was reading some you know some stories this morning that fear um, this is just the beginning. Um, so in other words, Atlantic Canada has been dealt a devastating blow this week with regards to air access and network coverage and that sort of thing. But this trend may continue across the country. Now I will. Um, highlight the fact that the recovery for the aviation sector, which you're right, aviation, hospitality, tourism are certainly the hardest hit in our country. I think it's important for people to remember, too, that the the national average on on GDP for Atlantic Canada for tourism is double that of the rest of the country. So it hurts us even more in Atlantic Canada because, you know, our GDP is is doubly reliant on, um, on this sector. But it, um, we may see this trend continue nationally, um, which, which, is, which is not a, a good sign either. Um, 
with regards to recovery. Uh, the aviation sector has unquestionably been hit the hardest. We were hit first, you know, March 13th. That was it. The world changed forever in this industry. And we will be the last to recover as well, um, because now so many things have happened, whether it's Atlantic bubbles or consumer confidence or now loss of connectivity and frequency. Um, you know, the, the, the barricades keep getting thrown up with regards to obstacles that this industry will have to overcome to be able to sort of restore itself to what it once was not that long ago. Right. And, and the Atlantic, you know, the Atlantic bubble it's, itself has, you know, been very much positioned as a, as a protective, as a protective measure. Uh, but at the same time, it, it insulates us from the rest of the country, right? And has had serious impacts on, on the airline industry. What's your, what's your perspective on the bubble and, and what's, how, how do you see us, you know, practically um, addressing some issues around that, uh, that issue that would help airports and help the industry? That's a good question, Mark. I mean, the bubble unquestionably has certainly done its job with regards to, to safeguarding our citizens. And, and we've done an admirable job in, in keeping the virus at bay and, and, and perhaps keeping it even away for, for quite a bit of the, you know, the spring and the summer. But as, um, as you know, just look at a newspaper today, um, you know, it still finds its way in to our society and into our community. So if you look at other parts of the country or other parts of the world, folks are, are sort of moving away from the notion of the 14-day isolations and, and trying to find a blend of, of science, best practices, good protocols, and access to rapid testing um, to, to, in order to find a way to, to coexist with the virus. Because the notion of stamping it out or eliminating it in the near future uh, in Atlantic Canada, that's, that's, you know, trying to keep at zero cases is not sustainable. So, um, you know, we're encouraging the Atlantic governments to, to explore and invest more in the, you know, in using testing uh, alongside of some form of quarantining, not 14 day. The 14 day is a non-starter for the aviation industry. It, it just, it, it's, you can't, the airlines can't run their business that way. We can't run airports that way, hotels, restaurants, the tourism industry, it doesn't work. They are two mutually exclusive concepts. So again, trying to find a way to blend science and perhaps a 48-hour or a 72-hour quarantining um, instead of 14-day, and um, and again adhering to the protocols. You know, mask wearing, hand washing, social distancing. You know, they they can they can help. They have helped us, and uh, so so that's what we're advocating for. At this time, with with regards to how to coexist with the virus and and ways to um, just to sort of open up our region to to the rest of the world because we can't remain cut off like this. And you had mentioned you know the whole notion of consumer confidence and and one of the things that's been sort of running through my head for you know the last several weeks you know Derek as I think about this and I've you know had this conversation with with other people in 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 business. Uh, in different sectors is it, it, it creates, we've sort of, we've created an atmosphere in which it's really hard to have conversations about practical solutions because people are so, so afraid. Right. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and I'm sure you're, you're encountering this, right. Where we, you know, we put in place, you know, hard measures that, that are really hard for us to, to revisit because people start feeling safe with those hard measures. Right. That's right. And it's, it's hard to revisit. And it's hard to sustain. And it's also, um, you know, everything gets painted with a travel related brush. I think an, inter an interesting stat people might not know, be familiar with or might not know of is since masks were mandated on planes, which would have been early April, I think. Um, and uh, yet to wait. since masks were mandated to be worn on planes globally, four people have caught the virus on a plane <laughs> globally. Um, since that time happened. So that's um, that's an incredibly small number if you look at the amount of passengers there are out there. And 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 you're right, people have such a visceral reaction to to you know the the risk of this virus or how they may get it. I mean, we've got all kinds of crazy examples of you know doctors getting outed and being publicly shamed for possibly of contributing to 
the spread of the virus. Uh, you know, this notion of I'm going to have zero cases on a you know every, each day that goes by is um, is really really tough to sustain, and um, and it's eaten into consumer confidence now. Um, you know, the airlines and the airports mm-hmm. have quadrupled our spends on sanitization and educating customers on the the extensive precautions that are now in place. I'd argue, you know, a very safe place to be, maybe one of the safest places is in an airport terminal or on a plane with regards to being able to catch the virus. So, and if you look at, you know, how it spreads is typically through recklessness um, and people not following the protocols or not following what they should be doing. And, um, but unfortunately it's trickled down where the notion of travel is, is, is now socially unacceptable the notion of people from away coming here is very undesirable. The notion of us getting on a plane and going somewhere else is extremely unappetizing. So we've really um, made travel, travel by air, travel in general, using a hotel or leaving our, our bubble, um, extremely unattractive. And I, it's it's interesting. I I, I appreciate the, the analogy to, you know, I mean, the, 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 the sectors in some ways are the hardest hit. And and we're the highest profile put in place protocols that are really stringent. And uh, I was thinking this is, you know, a tangential analogy, but I was thinking of all the 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 hair salons that had to shut down in Moncton when we went back into um, into the the orange phase there. And I there's actually no business that I feel safer in right now. (laughs) I've gone in to get my hair cut and the, the protocols are so tight. Yeah, and I feel I feel extremely safe, um, yeah. Yeah. and and I'm sure it's true in the airline industry where you really had to uh, put in place really stringent measures and get on top of this. Yes, I, you're right. Funny, I went to the dentist um, for my checkup yesterday and, and cleaning, and it was my first time at the dentist office since this whole thing began because they're you know they were shut down when I was due to go before. Anyhow, it's um, the protocols in place at the dentist are, are amazing and. You know, it's very similar to what you see now at um, the airports and, and the airlines. It's it's very, very safe. I understand, like, I wouldn't recommend to go into a hotspot somewhere for a vacation. But, um, you know, other parts of the country, if you look at how the sector is doing nationally or, or in North America, you've got, you know, the West um, is the airports and airlines are operating at around 28, 29% capacity. So still down. 70 plus percent but um but you know recovering a little bit each week central ontario quebec and ontario you see them operating at around 17 18 19 percent of previous levels so again still down over 80 percent um and then you look at atlanta canada four five percent um you know it's uh it, i get it it's reflective of of the bubble i suppose but Again, it uh, you look at the uh, United States. You know they're 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 in around seventy percent now um, down of where they were. But um, you know they they hit a low. I think typically in the United States, there's about two and a half million passengers a day that go through the airports, and their low was back in April. That went down to eighty seven thousand passengers a day going through the airports. But it's it's routinely at about a million a day now. So. Um, so people are finding a way to to live with it. People are taking advantage of the protocols and the and the safety uh, enhancements that have been implemented, and they're you know they're 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 moving forward. So um, and and I think people need to to remember that zero cases is um, is is not sustainable, nor is it a realistic approach to this. If it if it was up to you, I want to move on to talk about the um, uh, the funding issues with you in a second. Uh, and potential relief. Uh, if it was up to you, would you would you lift the bubble? Would you adjust it? What would you do? Um, I, 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 we'd have to have access to, to to rapid testing first. I mean, there are some some pilot projects going on across the country right now. You've got the the Toronto Airport just wrapped up uh, a data collection exercise with McMaster University. You've got the Edmonton Airport, Calgary Airport, Vancouver Airport are are experimenting with testing. Um, that's good and bad. Because um, one of the key things I think to instill consumer confidence is a national standard, ideally a global standard. But I think before testing gets um, too fragmented, there needs to be some some good work done around a, a standard for the country. So I would encourage, and 
you know, in the, the federal government, along with its provincial counterparts, to work as hard as they can and as quickly as they can to establish some standards around giving people access to testing. Right now, in, New, in as you may know, in New Brunswick, um, you know, if I wanted to get a test in New Brunswick, I, I really, I, I have to assume I have it or, you know, and then go down that route where in, look at the States, there's now rapid testing available at many of the major airports. Now it's user pay. Um, it's not, you know, it's anywhere from 49.99 to a, you know, to a simple test to maybe 79.99 US to, to a more extensive test. But at least it's um, you being able to provide some assurances and some safeguards, and you know the notion that uh, that you, you know you don't have it now, and, and a lot of these tests involve a, another test that you you take with you and you provide either two or three days later. But um, you know we, we've again we as I said earlier we've got to blend science um, with caution and and find a path to move forward. So I would say I I advocate um, some resources and exploration of the use of rapid testing, ideally a standardized rapid, rapid testing for air travelers in Atlantic Canada and begin to, to open the bubble that way. Um, not just, I'm not saying to unlock the gates and, and, and let the unwashed masses, you know, just rush in here, but uh, move off of the 14-day isolation, which, as I said, is a non-starter for this industry and start to blend other policies or practices or procedures that are being used around the world. Now, to this point, like the, the federal government approach has been to create uh, relief programs and, and funding programs that aren't sector specific. Right. And I know that, you know, the airports and the airlines have been like other sectors that have been really, really hard hit. It, hospitality uh, is one of them. Um, and then obviously, uh, you know, travel and, and, and the airline industry make make your case for why there are sectors like the airlines and the airports that that need that need special attention and and what does that look like in terms of the scale of the funding that would be needed and uh and what it would be used for sure um great question so if you look at um you know the fact that the it, the Airport industry is highly regulated, so safety is of paramount concern. We invest heavily in safety. You know, the, both federal government and international bodies are, you know, increasing measures and levels and minimum thresholds. So, you know, I'm happy to report that after a 21 million dollar airfield modernization um, project at the St. John Airport, we would have one of the most modern, safest technologically advanced airfields for an airport our size in Canada. So in other words, there's a minimum level, a, a minimum of, uh, investment that needs to be made on safety. So we're highly regulated, highly mandated. So I can't just cut back on, uh, I mean, I can cut back on capital projects. I can cut back on, on staffing as a sector. The unemployment rate now in the airport aviation sector in Canada is, is around 50%. Um, but at a certain point, I can't cut anymore because if I go beyond a certain level, I'm no longer an airport. I'm a campground or a drag strip. So I can't, uh, I can't accept planes and airports are mission critical infrastructure. Um, you know, we, we've remained open just like every other airport in Canada, 24 seven, you know, for the important movement of, of, uh, of healthcare personnel, medevac, essential workers, um, you know, we've got corporate clients that have big operations out at the airports and, and in an effort to try to help our airline partners salvage some form of business. So we're a highly regulated, uh, heavily safety mandated piece of critical infrastructure um, and, and that can only cut so much. So, so there, there's that element of it. The other element of it that I think people may not be 100% familiar with is the fact that the airports in Canada were, were mostly privatized in the, in the late 90s. And, and they're led by a community-based board of representatives, which is meant to be reflective of the various communities that they serve. And they've been largely successful. If you look at um, up until the privatization of airports in Canada, there were only ever two airports in our country that were actually profitable. And I think it was um, Toronto and Vancouver. Um, that were, you fast forward that to today, you had these 
municipally or these um, community-led airport boards. The airports, for the most part, are profitable. They're self-sustaining. As an example, the St. John Airport never took a penny of government money uh, since the day it was privatized in 99 until just last year when you know we, we were able to access some federal programs because uh, our runways were at, a, at an age now where they needed refurbishment and um, there was a lot of safety uh, in, uh, updates that had to be done at the St. John Airport and the federal government had made a program available to various um, entities across the country. And it was called the, the, the National Trade Corridor Fund, the NTCF. And we applied to it and we were able to get some assistance to, to modernize our airfield and, and, and install a lot of the what are now mandatory requirements, safety things in our airfield. And, you know, we were able to get some funding. for, But that was the first time. And if you look across the country, the model has been extremely successful. The airports are thriving. The airports have been able to, um, to keep up with uh, the infrastructure requirements along with the, the demand of travel. And, um, you know, there's some beautiful terminals across the country, uh, but they're safe. They're modern. And, um, and then the pandemic hit. And uh, the model that we have in Canada is based on a user pay model. But when the, um, there's no users, uh, th that, that's essentially our main source of revenue. Um, and it, it may also be interesting for folks to, to note that we lease these facilities from the federal government. So they're, they're a partner. They're our landlord. And, you know, these community boards took on the day-to-day -day running of the airports in the late 90s, and they've done a good job. They've been successful. And we pay rent to the federal government. We pay rent to the tune of about $330 million a year. Um, it's also notable that Canada is the, one of the, on, the only G7 country that actually makes money off its airports. Uh, a lot of other countries view it as a you know a break even in other words if they collect money from the airports they they give it back to the airports through a variety of infrastructure programs or capital assistance programs those kinds of things our government um you know the model was i guess so successful that our government was able to um to, to make it profitable and collect rent off it so you know what that worked well when we had uh, lots of users going through the system we had, uh, you know, the air, airlines investing in new routes in Atlantic Canada or across the country. But you know what? We're, we're in trouble now. Um, the, the airports have been well run. We went into this pandemic with, uh, with decent bank accounts. The St. John Airport has a long history of being very financially prudent and did a good job watching uh, their nickels and dimes. And we had put away money for a rainy day. Well, guess what? It's been pouring nonstop for almost eight months. So you tell me a business that can, uh, you know, my business in the St. John Airport is down about 92%. And I had savings, yes, but I'm using them up to survive on a day-to-day -day basis because we've never closed for a minute. But what business can withstand a 92% drop in, in business, deplete its bank accounts, and still be ex expected to be available 24-7 for all of the mission-critical purposes that we serve for our community? And, and let me tell you, having an airport in your town in 2020 is the same as having a train stop in your town in 1880. It's, um, it is a key economic driver uh, and, and a key indication of the overall economic healthiness, if you will, of that community. That's a long answer. <laughs> so what kind, uh, no, no, that's quite all right. Uh, so what kind, of, uh, what kind of assistance is needed? It's a great question. So for a lot of the airports, um, I'll use St. John as an example. I mean, it's, it's, it's been there since 1952. You know, the airport was in Milledgeville before that. But, it, you know, it's not a young building. And uh, thankfully, through the National Trade Corridor Fund, we were able to make some substantial infrastructure improvements uh, in, uh, in 2018 and 2019. But when, you look, when I look ahead and I, and I think of, of, of our airport, and, you know, it, I said it was profitable. I mean, it doesn't generate a huge profit every year, but we certainly cover all of our costs and we've been able to put away a million and a half or $2 million a year into our savings. And, and um, you know, for, for something major that wasn't expected or, or a big piece of, you know, equipment improvement we may need to make. People not may not realize that fire trucks are extremely expensive for, uh, for airports. They're a very uh, specially built, purpose-built tool. And, a, and an airport fire truck, costs about $1.3 million. The St. John Airport has two fire trucks that are 1984 models 
that the federal government was nice enough to refurbish at privatization in 1998, 1999. Um, but they're still quite old. So, um, so things like fire trucks, other capital types of projects, whether it's, um, again, I'll use the St. John Airport as an example. We're not on city water. So, you know, we operate our own wastewater treatment plant. We operate our own potable water treatment plant. These plants are from the 70s and are in desperate need of, of updating. So it's not like I'm looking to build out, you know, the world's most elaborate cappuccino bar with a really, really savvy barista. And I wanted heat, you know, heated theater seating with massaging capabilities on the chairs and the terminal. It's real basic <laughs> kinds of infrastructure that we need. So I'd look, you know, and I, and trust me, we've provided a lot of detail to the federal government about what our our financial outlook is, and we've provided, you know, updated versions of it as this pandemic has continued. But for the St. John Airport, and for a lot of my, my you know, uh, colleagues at the other airports in Atlanta, Canada, our needs are, are really quite basic. We'd, we'd, we'd like access to, 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 to operating grants, maybe no to very low interest loans to try to fund the projects that, um, that we needed to get done in the next couple of years extend some of the programs that have been made available, like the National Trade Corridor Fund that I mentioned earlier on, or the bilateral infrastructure agreements where airports typically have not been eligible um, to request funding from these programs. There's a program out there called the, the Airport Capital Assistance Program, um, you know, which is meant for very small airports, um, but again, maybe expanding the eligibility criteria for that fund, just to give airports, I'd say, access to, to funding um, for, uh, you know, for mission critical and safety related and infrastructure, you know, maybe, you know, tired infrastructure uh, funding and, and just to, to, to keep us afloat because, you know, not everyone will be able to, to withstand this storm and, and, and everyone, you know, is uh, the, the airport's financial situations are almost as unique as your personal finance, financial situations. Some have made big investments in terminal expansions and, and runway extensions and, some have made big investments in um, in, in, in equipment. Um, so again, I'm, I'm not talking about money for expansions. I'm not talking about money for Taj Mahal terminals. I'm talking about access to airports to make sure that they remain safe, sure, make sure they remain compliant. And, um, and if they've got um, end of life infrastructure, perhaps access to funding for that. You know, I had a, originally I had a $5 million capital plan for, for 2020. You know, and that $5 million, that trickles down into our economy, um, you know, with for St. John, for, for construction workers and trades and buying materials. And, you know, we were going to build a, a new wastewater treatment plant this year. And we were going to finish off, if you've been to the airport lately in St. John, you might have noticed we've been steadily improving our, our curb appeal, if you will. And, you know, we've we had very aging parking lots and walkways and and landscaping and um, and curbs that were broken and people were tripping on and wrecking their suitcase wheels on and you know we've been working steadily at, at, at improving the passenger experience and um, you know there was a final phase to that while we fixed up you know the front of the building which has an older canopy that is that's it's end of life right it's not a it's not a sexy upgrade it's it needs to be done and um, it's the right thing to do uh, you know for for the airport itself. So um, I think for programs like that, we'd be looking for funding for. So as I said, just to, to go through the list again, it would be access to, to operating grants. You know, well, every airport in our region will lose a substantial amount of money in 2020. So some help to offset that. Access to, to maybe, like I said, no to, to low interest loans for those that uh, would like to borrow money to, with, with their, their situation. Access to federal programs um, to to allow us to, to do uh, major capital projects or safety related capital projects. Obviously I talked about the $333 million a year that the airports pay to the federal government in rent, maybe waiving rent for um, you know, the remainder of our leases or maybe the next five years at a, as a starting point. Um, so it's those kinds of things, Mark, that um, you know, the airports can use help with. Right. And then, you know, and, you know, as you mentioned, like the, you know, the federal government is, is, heavily invested in the success of these airports through landlords, right? Um, all, you know, also, you know, the federal government would obviously understand the importance of, of not just the mission critical aspects of this, but also just the economic development uh, aspects of this in terms of, you know, a successful country can't be successful without strong airports and strong airlines. Um, 
so given given that obviously there there be that support like what are you hearing from them are are you hearing you know the well is dry arguments or in terms of looking for special funding that you know and is happening in even in places like the United States right no, that's a great question. I mean, we're we've we've had a lot of dialogue with them. That's for sure. We we certainly have spent a great deal of time describing the problem in vast detail, providing multiple versions of our financials. Um, they have all of the data that they need to to make a decision. And you're right; they don't have to look very far to figure out, um, you know, what what are other people doing. The United States in April. Um, made available $10 billion to their airports to access. I mean, it was literally just money sent to the airports to help them. And, you know, if you look at, you know, what does that mean locally? Well, Bangor received $4 million and Portland, Maine, received $12 million. Um, and, when you, and when you look at the size of Bangor, the look at the size of, of Portland, you'll see some pretty common similarities from a passenger volume like a Moncton or a Fredericton or a St. John. And guess what? Those dollar amounts are, are kind of are kind of similar to, to to what you know our losses are going to be like as well. So um, you know, so there's a, plenty of examples to use if you look at sort of the G7, and you can see you know in Europe, Germany, or France. I mean, they're spending you know they spent to date about sixty dollars per passenger in in trying to provide assistance to the airports. United States, you know, to date has spent about. Know, thirty to thirty-five dollars per passenger for the airports, and you know to try to um, to try to stabilize the, the sector. Canada to date spent just al- almost two dollars uh, to try to uh, to try to stabilize this industry. Um, in addition to the ten billion dollars that the United States government gave to the airports, you would have the thirty to thirty over thirty billion to the airlines. So. Um, yeah, so that you know, there's a the, the federal government has the detail, and I get it. You know, you mentioned it earlier on when these relief programs started, the federal government was they were quick to move. Um, you know, they, they 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 were trying to stay away from sector specific programs and tried to create programs that could be universally applied, and that was good. And we were certainly able, we the St. John Airport and all of the airports in Atlantic Canada. We're able to leverage the wage subsidy, and you know, that was a real blessing, and, uh, and and you know it's helped. Um, but however, like like you also pointed out, there are certain sectors that have been really hit hard, hit hard that so hard, like ours, that they they will require um, sector specific support, and that's tourism, that's hospitality, that's aviation. These these have been hit hard, and they've been hit hard because the federal government and provincial governments have had to make tough decisions around closing of the U.S. border and in our Atlantic Canada, we've closed our domestic borders. That has a direct impact on our business. We can't control that. Um, we were running a successful, vibrant, viable business up until this happened. And while being able to take advantage of some of the programs that are out there, um, you know, the St. John Airport is, is part of, of the of system of airports called the NAS Airport, which stands for the National Airport System. There are 26 airports in Canada that are deemed strategic to our nation's air connectivity, if you will. There's a giant highway in the sky and there's an exit in St. John. And we do a very good job safeguarding that exit. We safeguard it for leisure passengers who want to visit family and friends or go on vacation. We safeguard it for the large multi-billion dollar a year corporations that are headquartered in St. John. And um, we need help, right? We've, we've, We've taken this about as far as we can on our own. And um, as we head into these tough winter months where our expenses go way up with regards to snow clearing and, and keeping it, again, safe uh, for anyone that's using the system, um, it's, again, it's just not sustainable to, to be operating at a 92% drop in business and, and living off your savings. And, and once your savings run out, start to borrow money to stay afloat. So don't think it's an unreasonable ask, like you said, and I mentioned we're in partnership with the federal government on these airports. They're our landlord. They, they, you know, they, they, they have a stake in this. And um, you know, Canada has uh, is a big country, and we've got a lot of um, you know square miles, square kilometers. And uh, part of living in Canada is the notion of access to safe, modern, reliable air transportation. And we have a very good network of airports. We've got a very good infrastructure. Very safe. Uh, very modern, and that needs to be preserved and it needs to be protected. 
Derek, it wasn't, it really wasn't that long ago that, you know, we didn't necessarily, we were worried about the regional airports, right? I mean, you, as you rightly point out, since, since privatization, we, we've had, we've, you know, built viable, uh, you know, profitable airports that are critical to our communities. But it really wasn't that long ago where we were having discussions around whether the airports would survive and whether we really should have one central airport for New Brunswick and, and you know, not, not the, um, the three main ones that would exist in the south of the province. Uh, are, are you worried that for the future of, of these regional airports and the discussion returning to which ones can survive? Um, I don't know if I'm, if I'm, if worry is the right word, I guess, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm a newcomer to this industry, so I can look at it quite objectively. And if you, you look at it from, from the highest level, you can see that, as I mentioned, all the airports were, were very successful and very viable in New Brunswick. So um, nobody was, was dying on the vine. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate for Bathurst. People may not know this. Bathurst has had no daily commercial service uh since the beginning of april so um that's it's going to be tough for them and their future is certainly in peril but it's important for folks to 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 understand that even though there's three medium-sized airports in new brunswick there was you know with with daily commercial service several options um they were all successful they were all viable the airlines were pleased with the uh, with the revenues they were getting from the airports and um you know, pleased with their yields and the profitability. So it becomes more of a question of, um, you know, if you look at uh, maybe the, the Halifax or the Nova Scotia model, you know, it's, uh, you know, it was a lot of the population in Nova Scotia lives around Halifax. They've got one airport. They've got Sydney as well, but they've got one major airport. And, um, you know, there is some benefits to scalability. So, um, you know, the airlines are, they'll go where the numbers are. So, um, basically, I guess what I'm saying is with three smaller airports, I think they, I know they would have been able to continue um, being successful, being profitable, but I don't think New Brunswickers would have ever ultimately achieved the, maybe the selection and the variety that you might see in a Halifax because our model was different. It was more fragmented and you had a more consolidated model in, um, in, in Halifax. Um, you know, could, could that have been replicated in New Brunswick? Possibly uh, the time to do it the best time would have been around privatization. So at the end of the, of the nineties, when the government was handing off the, the day-to-day operations, it would, uh, and there was, I mean, it, there was uh, some discussion of it then it's a bit of a, you know, an urban legend in New Brunswick where, you know, there was always talk of it. There still is talk of it. And there's certainly pluses and minuses. Um, you know, every, if, if you ended up with one and let's say it was a new one, which also seems like a daunting task these days to build a brand new airport from scratch would be a plus 500 million, maybe three quarters of a billion uh, exercise. Um, But so there's that notion and the notion of an hour drive to the airport is pretty common across the country. Now, if you live in Toronto or Waterloo or Calgary, and you know, a lot of people have a long drive to the airport. We've, We've again, quality of life. We had three really good medium sized airports, I get it with similar offerings, but as far as convenience and connectivity and the ability to, to get out and to get to anywhere in the world, we had it pretty good. So there's pluses and minuses. I can certainly make both arguments, but um, that being said, you know, it's going to take four or five years to, to rebuild what we had before. And, um, and I'm not sure, if, I don't know the intimate finances of all of the other airports in New Brunswick, but there's likely airports that, that can't wait that long. Um, so we'll, we'll see what, what happens in the future. Right. But we, I mean, the, the, but the, the, you know, the, the essence of this is that we need to, right. I mean, you know, as we talked about in the beginning of this, uh, conversation, just in your own personal situation, uh, this is really critical to the, to the growth, of the economy, uh, being nimble. And, and as you say, it's, 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 they're the train stations of the global yeah. economy, right? Like, that's right. We need our people to be able to get out into the world and we need companies to feel like if they locate here or have employees here uh, that they can get in and out of Atlantic Canada, uh, you know, uh, easily. That's right. And, and, and we're kind of at a really critical point because we, we have an opportunity at our feet right now because, there, you know, this notion of, of this mass exodus from the big urban centers in Toronto and, and your Vancouver's and, and what have you. 
uh, is real, right? If you talk to any real estate agent, they will tell you there are people buying houses sight unseen in New Brunswick now and um, and really trying to, you know, to, 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 to tap into the great quality of life that we have in Atlantic Canada. But, you know, that's heavily reliant on, um, on air access um, because I think of myself, you know, and, I, and I, I even talk to my wife sometimes and I say, man, you know, what would have happened if I stayed in the enterprise software game and, and all of a sudden I didn't have access to these, uh, these, these airports and, and this, this great schedule and the frequency and, and getting in and getting out so easily. And, um, you know, I don't know if I would have been able to do that job anymore. And that's the exact opposite of what we're trying to do now in New Brunswick with population growth and economic growth. And, and we, we finally have people getting the message that, uh, that, that, it's a great place to live. People are sort of tap, tapping into what I discovered 16 years ago when I moved here. And, uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it, what makes it really viable is this connectivity and this access to, to airports and this notion of, man, I get in my car and I'm at the airport in 15 minutes and I'm out of here and it's friendly. It's not, um, it's not, not huge lineups and it's got, you know, nice place to get something to eat and it's safe and it's bright and, I can get back in and if there's bad weather, I can use another airport or I can, you know, if they're sold out and I really need to go, I've got options. And, um, you know, we had an enviable uh, access. Uh, and uh, But if we want to welcome more people here, if we want to encourage more people to come, um, we're going to need a robust uh, infrastructure. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. There's um, a few board members that I have uh, at the airport and they, they've got a good line, which is, the only thing worse than three airports in New Brunswick would be two airports. So it's, uh, which I like. Um, so it's, it's true. Uh, and uh, again, it's a critical, critical time. And um, I can debate the, the one airport thing for, for hours on end and I can take both sides. But uh, the way I look at it right now is that we have, we have bigger problems at the moment and, uh, and we, we've got to sort, you know, what we, what we had out. And then we can start to sort of plan for the future because it's um, it, it's it's critical right now. It, it was quite a time for you to take on the role of, of president of the Regional Airports uh, Association. You took it on right in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, it's it's yeah, you're right. It's either brilliant or crazy. But um, it's uh, <laughs> I, having come from the you know 18 years of the software business, I'm used to like a, you know living in hyper change and. Uh, I'm used to, you know, taking things and, and blowing them up and starting over again. And so to me, it was like, ah, sure. Why, you know, it, why not? I mean, it's, um, like I said, I, I don't come with any baggage. I don't come with any preconceived notions. Um, you know, I, I come with a pretty open mind and, and I've seen a, a lot of other, you know, I've been at software companies where we've had to completely pivot and we thought the product was, was going to be doing this, but instead people are using it for that and change our marketing, change our messaging. Let's, Let's if that's how people want to use it. Let's let's go after that. So I don't mind rapid change. I don't mind you know huge odds against me. Um, I don't mind any of that stuff. So it's uh, pretty resilient and uh, and pretty hard to, um, to to ruffle my feathers. So I, I don't mind. And it's to me I like um, trying to solve a, a puzzle or a mystery or a riddle. And it's uh, this has been interesting because. Every day, something different happens. It's funny. We had a board meeting earlier this week, and I can't believe how much happened, you know, how much changed in one week, um, you know, which is unheard of. It was a fairly stoic industry and quite dependable and reliable. And, you know, it was a big ship. It took big turns to, 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 to change direction. And, man, just in one week, you know, you had, the, um, you had a resurgence of the virus in New Brunswick. You had Porter delay their restart again till till December. Now you had WestJet pull largely out of Atlantic Canada. Um, had a lot going on in just a week, uh, but you know that's okay. I can I can roll with that. Right, and that that experience in in trying to help build, I can see how that experience in help building, you know, tech companies and software companies, and and the ups and downs that would happen there, uh, and the vulnerabilities would be. You're you're ready for that ride. <laughs> Yeah, it, it it doesn't it doesn't it's you know it, it doesn't scare me and um, because this is I mean this the people that work in this industry are are, are wonderful people and 
And you, you tend to see a lot of long-termers in this industry. I mean, I think at the St. John Airport, we have second generation folks that work at the airport who, you know, whose father worked there for 30, 40 years. Their sons work there now. I mean, these were jobs that were, you know, they're good union jobs with excellent benefits and, um, and uh, you know, very seemingly very secure. And, uh, and the notion that someone could, you know, lose their job at the airport, um, that's pretty far-fetched, not, not that long ago. You know, again, you fast forward to a pandemic world, we've, you know, we've laid off 40% of the workforce at the airport. And um, we've had a few folks who thought it was a good time to retire, seeing what was going on. And, uh, and, and they've left. So, you know, we're down about 50% of the workforce at uh, the St. John Airport, which is pretty consistent with, with airports across the country now. Um, and, you know, and you've got all of the ancillary stuff, right? You've got the restaurant folks, the rental car folks, the, the airline folks, the security folks, the passenger screening folks. There, there's a lot of people who indirectly and directly make their living from, from, from airports and aviation. And uh, it's a real trickle-down effect. And, um, again, these were considered good-paying jobs, secure jobs, and, uh, and people worked a whole, you know, almost two generations. Or three generations and never thought something like this can happen. So it's um, so for them, this is a real shock uh, and it's it's really devastating. And uh, it, it was certainly just it was unfathomed. Are those are those people feeling? And this would you know question to you too as as we kind of wrap up. Uh, did they feel optimistic? I mean, did it's, you uh, feel optimistic? You mean the ones that are still there? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, yeah. I don't mean that to sound trivial, but I'm just trying, yeah. you know, trying to get a sense of: do we see our way out of this? Right? Yeah. I mean, if again, I, I read a lot about the industry every day, and you know, there's certainly the notion that one day this, you know, we will return to a, a state of normal, and the analysts are telling us it's going to be five years, maybe six years for traffic and passenger levels, and of course, that's accompanying revenues to. Um, to catch up, um, if you look at mankind over over you know over the years, I mean we're a resilient um, species. You know we will get back there, and uh, and again I'd argue that for most of the airports, in order to remain compliant and safe, and and uh, you know we're we're there from a staffing level. It's it's tough. It's it's a lot less people. Um, so. They're they're hopeful. Again, on some days it's it's harder than others when you know they've had to say goodbye to a lot of coworkers and and again just even wrap their mind around how could this happen and and um, you know we're hopeful for some for some federal assistance and and then we can start to, to 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 look to the future instead of just trying to plug holes in this boat um, every single day. Uh, you know it's hard to even. To think about planning for the future when you're when every single day is a four alarm crisis, um, so you know that, that 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 would help again coming back to the funding and what what could we do with it and where where, where would we use it? Um, start to plan again to about to rebuild because the economy is going to need the airports when the rebuilding happens and um, we, we we've got to be there we want to be there and uh, and people are going to need us to be there. So again, that's I can't stress how important the role that we're, we want to play and that we will and can play uh, in in the recovery. Um, I, uh, I have another question for you, and I hope it's uh, not a you know a trivial way to you know to to end our conversation, but hopefully it's um, we can see it in the spirit of optimism. Um, my, uh, my wife and I, it's kind of a you know an exercise that we go through periodically where you know we we all feel kind of like you know trapped in the bubble even though a lot of people feel that it's protective and safe um you know but what my wife and i are are travelers uh and like like you are and you know just this morning you know over coffee we were reminiscing over our uh, last trip which was to miami beach uh, a couple of years ago um at, around my birthday and uh and we picked miami beach uh, because we were looking for a five-day trip and we were looking to get out of, you know, the St. John Airport as, uh, and, you know, into the, you know, most direct place where we could get sun. <laughs> and that turned out to be Miami Beach and we had a great trip and we were kind of reminiscing. 
about that and, uh, and, and have done great trips out from here. And, and I know also people also look at coming into Atlanta, Canada for their own reasons for those kinds of trips. And, and it's a huge, that tourism and travel is a big part of a, a great two way economy, right? It gives us breaks, you know, getting out of here. And, uh, but we also have a beautiful place to invite people into and the airport's a critical part of that. So, you know, Miami beach is big on, on my, my wife's list and my list, uh, to get back to once we're out of this, do you, do you yourself think, you know, once all this lifts, this is the one place in the world I want to go to? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, my, my family is all, is from Barbados. So, um, my dad was born there. I've got a lot of family there. Uh, I was born in Montreal. My dad emigrated to, uh, to Canada at the, in the late fifties. So we go to Barbados quite often. And, you know, Kath and I, my wife and I were supposed to go in April and then we moved that to, to the first uh, week of November. We had to move that again. So as soon as I can, I'm going back to, uh, to Barbados and, uh, and, and can't wait. And I, and also I, I, I want to get to Montreal, even, you know, something less, uh, less exotic. I want to get to Montreal and see my mom and, uh, and see my sister. I've got a sister in Montreal and I've got one in Fredericton. So I'm able to see my sister in Fredericton and her family, all the, you know, that, which is great. But yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's probably Montreal first and then Barbados. Well, thanks, Derek. I think maybe we should end the conversation on, you know, thoughts of, of uh, sunshine and future trips and being <laughs> able to reconnect with family. No, that's, thanks that's very great. much for, for joining me today. No, thank you very much for the time and uh, and again giving me the opportunity to, to talk talk a little bit about this. It's important and uh, and I and I really appreciate it. All right, well, thanks very much, Derek. You've been listening to the latest episode of Huddle Home Office. And if you're new to the podcast, uh, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and catch up on past episodes. Huddle Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legere, Sharice Letson, and Tyler McLean. And we will talk to you next week.